Apple presents events at the Apple Store. Please welcome this afternoon's guest moderator, programmer for the Tribeca Film Festival, Kara Cusimano. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this, uh, this afternoon's panel. Thank you all so much for being here, and thank you to our filmmakers. We're going to be able to uh, preview some exclusive clips and trailers from the new films at the festival this year, so we're very excited about that. Uh, and I'd love to introduce our panel of filmmakers. We have Owner Tukel, who directed Summer of Blood. <laughs> Steven Belber, who directed Match. Jody Lee Lipes, who directed Ballet 422. Justin Weinstein, who directed An Honest Liar. And Garrett Bradley, who directed uh, Below Dreams. So before we get started, I'd love to just um, tell you a little bit about Tribeca. We are kicking off in just about 10 days, April 16th to 27th. Our program is all announced. It's online at TribecaFilm.com, so please check it out and see uh, all the great films we'll be premiering this year. Also new this year, we have a free day of screenings on Friday, April 26th. So uh, you can also find out more online about how to get tickets uh, to those free screenings as well. Uh, tickets go on sale on April 8th to Amex card members and April 14th to the general public. So uh, I hope we'll be seeing you there and, and when you hear more about these great films that you'll be, uh, you'll be attending their premieres in just a few days. So let's get started. I think we'll actually start with Steven Belber and your film Match. So your film will be world premiering in our spotlight section this year. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about Match? It's, a, it's, a, it's based on a play that I wrote about 10 years ago. And uh, it's about a, a guy who's a professor of dance at, at Juilliard. And um, this, young, this couple comes and, and interviews him about the history of dance in the 60s and uh, the era in New York City downtown at that time. And, and then these questions become a bit more bizarre and intense, and uh, they're there for a different reason. And so um, it, was a, it was a play. It really took place in one room, and uh, not the most logical thing to want to um, to, to make into a movie, but uh, <clears throat> over the years, I, I sort of, um, I kept thinking of it. It was not managed uh, and directed so much as the way I wanted to on broad, uh, when it was on, uh, as a play. It was sort of became a broad comedy, and I knew there was more dramatic material in there. And I just thought that the, the medium of film was a way that I could get in there as a director to rework the script and um, kind of get to the heart of this stuff that I was trying to get at that I, I, as, a, as a younger playwright, I, I lost control of in the process. Um, so that was, uh, it was a very satisfying uh, journey for me to do that. And, um, and we have this incredible performance by Patrick Stewart in the, I, I, as this sort of sexually ambiguous guy who, who dedicated his entire life to dance and um, what the ramifications of that were. So I'll give you that. You're, you mentioned the performances. Um, the performances are amazing in this film with Patrick Stewart, Matthew Lillard, and uh, Carla Gugino, and they're the only characters in the film. So I'm curious what your process is working with those actors on such a, an intimate scale. Um, the first thing I said was, would, would you guys want to rehearse uh, as much as possible, which one always shoots for, I think. And uh, we didn't get as much as I wanted, but we got an incredible four or five days where we just went through the play slash screenplay several times and worked out all these beats. Um, and uh, it was incredible because they all have stage experience. Carla Gugina is a, is a stage beast. She's here in New York all the time on stage. She's amazing. Uh, Patrick Stewart obviously came up through British theater. And, and Matt Lillard, surprisingly to me at, at the time, it was, is, he's a guy who lives in L.A. and he's done a bunch of the Scream movies and things like this. But he has a theater group that he constantly does weekly readings of plays. So he loves his way around dense material. 
And, um, and that was what I wanted. I, I was seeking out actors who had that verbal dexterity. And, um, and I couldn't have asked for a better group uh, of, of folks to sort of, because it wasn't easy. And I was changing the script a fair amount. I was, as I say, navigating between comedy and drama in a way that I thought I had a, a key on, but it was, there's a lot of fluctuations within that of, of when you need to land it and when you don't. Um, and they were perfect collaborators in that regard. And you mentioned also that it was based on a play that you wrote. Did you find that you had to approach the material in a really different way now that it was a film, or was it just a matter of what you spoke to before? Um, yeah, we, we, we certainly we blew it out a little bit. I didn't want to take it and, and create a bunch of false exteriors that were unjustified, but I found enough to give it some breath when I thought it really needed to be given breath. Um, and I knew that I wanted to get, in a way that you can't get in theater, I wanted to get between the words a little bit more. It's a very dialogue-heavy play, and I knew that, for me, the resonance was going to be in the silences between the words. And I knew that the camera could get in there and, and sort of there's a, it's, it's a sort of, the whole movie is a slow push-in. So there's, it starts out sort of, you know, mid-shots and, and ends up very close. And I, I knew I wanted that. I, I sort of was stealing from uh, 12 Angry Men, the way Sidney Lumet kind of pushed in um, throughout the course of the movie. And I knew that by the end, I wanted their faces and their, their blinks of their eyes and, and all that n facial nuance to be the story as opposed to the words. So that's what I was shooting for, very different f than a play. But if I hadn't had that play as a, um, uh, a landscape to, that I knew where it was going, I wouldn't have been able to sort of achieve what I was going for, not if I did achieve it. So. That's great. Well, good luck with your premiere on the 18th. Thank you. Uh, and the next film we're going to discuss is Owner to Kell's Summer of Blood. This is our opening night film for our viewpoint section. Uh, and we have a trailer, so let's take a look. Moth clears up. Open it. Oh, this is really pretty. What's the occasion? I mean, it's just it's nice. I mean, Eric, I want I want to. I'm asking you if you want to marry me. Um, do you want to have dinner tonight? No. You're against marriage completely. You're totally against it. It's not for everyone. It's not for me. Hey, yeah, cheers. I think that's a really healthy attitude. All I think right. that's a terrific healthy attitude. It's good, huh? You like it? <laughs> Do you realize you are fundamentally incapable of taking anything seriously? You should probably stop eating so much bread, to be honest. Money? It's all about money! So it's basically a low-budget vampire comedy about a man who's petrified of marriage and commitment, and um, so the whole thing is kind of a metaphor. It's a, va it's a vampire comedy about fear of marriage, and uh, we shot in Bushwick in the, this summer, and we uh, shot with two cameras, and we were really focused on getting really energetic, um, spontaneous performances, which I could go into, but... That's for the Q&A, I guess, afterwards, so, yeah, so. So you directed this film and starred in it, and I'm wondering what that experience was like. Yeah, um, 
it was great. Uh, we, we made it. We made it with a really small crew of people with two cameras, which really helped performances. If anyone asks for for the camera, you shot with one or two cameras. One camera, we, we, you know, which is great for like cinema to get like a really beautifully crafted movie. And I love the photography and the way the movie's shot, but we wanted to focus more on the immediacy of the performances. Plus, we didn't have a lot of time to shoot. You probably didn't have a ton of time. But so having two cameras sped things up. It allowed us to get very, very organic, very fresh, spontaneous performances. But by being in the movie, I wasn't able to direct myself so much. So I trusted my producers a lot. And so they all, they helped direct scenes and they would give me feedback, they would get everyone feedback. We just try to be in the scene and pay attention to what was going on and get a lot of feedback from different people, so. Um, I'm curious about the dialogue in the film. Was it improvised? Did you rely on your script and how you worked with your actors, sort of your process? Yeah, it was very, it was very scripted. It was a 120-page script, which my di it's very dialogue-driven, so it goes by very quickly. It's not a two-hour movie. But um, we wanted to be very loose and, and feel improvisational, so we, would, we wouldn't... I wanted the actors not to remember their dialogue. I just wanted them to read over the scenes a few times before we actually shot the scene. So they would be familiar with the context and the talking points. So although it was all very scripted, um, we didn't, you know, we, ne we didn't rehearse. We didn't really have time. And because I didn't want it to feel like memorized, we didn't really commit the dialogue to memory. We just kind of read over it a few times, started shooting, and then we made adjustments as we shot. So um, I would say probably, you know, 70% of what was scripted actually made it into the film. And it was 30% of just stuff that was never, never planned, you know? But it was important for it to feel natural, so. And it's it is a genre film, so I'm wondering what your genre influences are and where you got your inspiration for the vampire elements of the film. Yeah, when I was uh, in, in high school, I grew up watching in the '80s. I grew up watching slasher films and low-budget horror films from the '80s. Um, but one of the, one movie in particular in the '80s that stuck out for me was American Werewolf in London. I don't know if everyone's seen the original. Well, there's only one for that, but it was a huge influence on me. And then when I got to college. I became really enthralled and, and, and I loved Woody Allen's movies. I know Woody Allen's like he's going through a hard time in the press right now, but I mean, I just, I, in, in the early, you know, I still admire his work. So I wanted to make a film that had the kind of sensibility of a wacky Woody Allen film with uh, also the kind of foundation of a low-budget horror film. Um, so I kind of merged those two sensibilities and whatnot. But there's four movies in particular, I'll be really quickly. There's a movie called The Comedy, a movie called American Psycho, a movie called Habit, and a, and a movie uh, called Vampire's Kiss that pretty much influenced this movie. You know, those are the four movies that I thought I want to rip off in a way, you know, so. Well, that's great. Well, we're excited for your premiere on the 17th. Thanks very much. Uh, the next film is a very different film that we'll discuss is a documentary called Ballet 422, directed by Jody Lee Lights, and that's screening as part of our documentary competition. Uh, so let's watch a clip from that right now. Stop! We need to do that again. Just we've, we were forgetting stuff, and I think Joe's new. Hey, Apple, you still got late. Sorry. It's okay. Make the first lifts more efficient, okay? The first, like, when she's just in sixth or fifth or whatever, okay? Like, uh, really contained, okay? You have to lift her up and lift her down, yeah. not just lift her up. Yeah, don't just up drop down. her, okay? Pick her up and put her down in a new spot. Okay, one more time. 
better. starting to lose its intensity. It's like they know it's coming now. Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So your film follows the creation of one ballet piece from conception to performance. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little more about the main character of your film and your approach to this story. Sure. Um, yeah, so Justin, who's that guy, Justin Peck, um, is a really young choreographer who um, is just now sort of, you know, have it, starting to develop a reputation internationally. And this is the third ballet that he did with New York City Ballet, but he's still kind of young and finding his way and sort of like learning how to work with the people around him who um, are sort of more established at the company. He's also a dancer there, um, and he's sort of in the lowest uh, class as a dancer, so he's working with dancers that are sort of like his superiors, and he's all of a sudden their boss. So he's kind of like learning how to navigate uh, that role. And he's also going through the whole process with the uh, costume designers and the lighting designers, and he's just sort of finding his voice uh, and finding out how all that stuff works. And how did you get such amazing behind-the-scenes access to the New York City Ballet? Um, well, a producer of, my, of the film who um, is in the audience right there, the white collar, um, is my wife. Um, <laughs> and uh, she uh, was a dancer at New York City Ballet for a soloist for about 13 years, 14 years. And uh, she retired and became the director of media at New York City Ballet. So she uh, produces all of their video content. Um, so together we came up with the idea for this film and uh, because Ellen knows that world so well and because we've also made a, another dance film together called New York Export Opus Jazz a few years ago. We just had an existing relationship with the dancers and the administration and so we sort of, we had access that's never been granted before. No one's ever been allowed to film this process before so this is the first time. And I know you also have a background in cinematography as well as fiction direction, and I'm curious if either of those sort of influenced the way you approach documentary. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I work as a DP um, on narrative and documentary films as well as a director, and um, yeah, I don't know, I think with, when I direct documentary, I think I try to tell the story visually as much as possible and let uh, the characters just sort of show us who they are rather than using talking heads and other devices like that for people to explain themselves. I just try to, to let action tell the story. So and a lot of the filmmaking and the storytelling comes from where the camera is and what we're seeing and what information uh, we convey visually. So, yeah. I'm always curious with documentaries, is there anything that you filmed that you weren't able to include in the final film? Uh, no, there wasn't. I mean, I think, 
you know, there's Black Swan is is great. I love that movie, but um, and it's actually very realistic in a lot of ways I found. But this process was a very uh, sort of conflict-free, just sort of like A B C D going through. Um, every step of what it's like to put something together artistically in this world. And, you know, it was all very open, and Justin was very open and inclusive, and there was nothing that he was uncomfortable showing. I think he's so focused on his work when he's working that he totally forgets the cameras there more than anyone I've ever seen. So, um, and I think his response to the edit was sort of the same. It was like, oh, well, this is what happened. So there was nothing that he was uncomfortable showing. Yeah. Is there anything else you think uh, pe people should know about your film before they see it? Um, not really. I don't know. Is there? <laughs> we'll save it for the Q&A. Yeah. Okay, thank you, and good luck with your premiere. Thanks. Our second documentary filmmaker is Justin Weinstein, who directed An Honest Liar with his co-director, Tyler Meesom. Uh, do you want to tell us a little about your clip before we show it? Yeah, um, so since it's not a trailer uh, and it kind of comes in in the middle of a story, um, you should know at least that uh, the film is about a, a famous magician turned skeptic debunker, uh, a guy named James the Amazing Randy. Um, and there are a lot of different elements to the film, but within his life he had a number of these kind of Ocean's Eleven style debunkings, investigations, infiltrations and uh, there's a lot of deception going on so he's a magician he knows how to deceive people and he's very good at spotting when others are using deceptive practices um, that magicians use uh, and in this case uh, it's a faith healer so in the 80s well still faith healers are are kind of popular um, but he saw this faith healer using what looked like mentalism techniques to be able to know people's names, know the ailments that they had, you know, and go up to them and, and say, you, you, have, you have cancer, I, I, God is telling me that, you know, you, you, you need to be healed of your blood condition and, then, and know their names and addresses. And so he got suspicious that something else was going on and started to, uh, to investigate. And that, that kind of gets you to where this, this clip is. Great. After a while, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there, and, and, and after some of the emotion had died down in me, Popoff said, I need people to come down to collect money from me. And basically he had 15 buckets, and I'm supposed to go around the auditorium and collect cash. And these people were throwing like five, tens, twenties. Because one of the things Popoff always tells them, whatever you give, you will get back tenfold. So if you put a dollar in, hey, you're gonna get 10 bucks. You put a hundred bucks in, you're gonna get a lot more money back. And these people pretty You foul spirit of deafness, take your hands off this woman in Jesus' name. Lord, let these ears be open. There it is. And as I get up close, I notice in his ear, that there's an earpiece, there's no ear hole. It's a little piece of plastic in there and I come back to Randy, I says, I think I know what's going on. I said, what's up? He said, he's wearing a hearing aid in his left ear. Now, a man who heals the deaf, you wouldn't think would be wearing a hearing aid. How do I sound now? <laughs> Loud. <laughs> Loud. 
At that point, I realized we needed some technical help, so I enlisted uh, the aid of a private investigator named Alec Jason. Stand by. And action. One day, Randy called me and suggested that Peter Popoff was using a radio transmissions, but they couldn't really figure out how it was done. And they wanted to know if I could intercept it or detect it. I said I certainly couldn't guarantee it. Less than 50-50, maybe 25%. We knew that Popov had a service, as he called it, happening in San Francisco, and we figured we'd better be there. Do you support Peter's ministry financially? Every dime I can, yeah. What brings you here today? Well, I'm expecting a miracle, physical healing. The day of the event, I dressed as a security guard, complete uniform, badge, shirt, radio, keys, everything. I'm not a security guard. I just put like one part of my cover. and. I was nervous. I appeared in disguise as Adam Jerson. If you put those words together and mix them up, they spell James Randi. So I went down a corridor, and that's where I set up my equipment. It was sort of concealed as in bags. So I have my scanner going, and it's looking for new frequencies, anything new that's not there normally. Get ready. Get ready. Praise God. Suddenly, on the scanner, one of the lights came on, saying there's a signal, and the scanner has stopped at that frequency. And I hear what I realize are now footsteps, high heel footsteps on a hard surface. So you talked a little about, about it in your uh, setup, but tell us more about the story behind An Honest Liar. Um, okay, well, so actually we started out filming, I would say, a standard biography because Randy has a really fascinating life. He was an escape artist, mentalist, magician, but then uh, saw how people were believing what some magicians were doing but not claiming to be magicians, claiming to be psychics, and he got really upset at that. And so he's, he became a skeptic and, and went out to kind of debunk people who are, are using those techniques. And so there are a number of great kind of episodes, stories in the film, like, like this one, um, of him doing these kind of debunkings, but then also during the course of the three years that we were filming, there was kind of a, a I don't know how to put it, a very personal deception that was revealed in his own life. Um, and it wasn't quite clear whether he was in on the deception or whether he was deceived. And it's something that involves uh, his partner of 25 years and became, I mean, a really kind of almost life-threatening situation. And so, you know, we started out filming this documentary about a man who is a master deceiver who uses deception to uncover, you know, hoaxes. And then it was discovered that he had this major deception going on in, in his own life, which kind of became uh, uh, another storyline in the film. So you had no idea that the material would sort of take that direction when you started? No, not at, not <laughs> at all. How did you meet uh, Randy and, and convince him to be part of the film? Well, um, so my, I met my co-director, Tyler Meesom. Uh, he had done 
a film, a documentary called Sons of Perdition, which was about um, young uh, teenagers escaping from the fundamentalist Mormon church. And Tyler himself is a former Mormon. Uh, I uh, was a scientist as well as a filmmaker, and I grew up you know, aware of Randy and very much kind of in that mindset of, you know, scientific evidence and skeptical thinking. Uh, and so, uh, and Tyler kind of was brought into that fold as he left the Mormon church and became, you know, skeptical of everything he was taught. And so we, uh, somebody had introduced the idea of a documentary about Randy to Tyler. Tyler hadn't heard of Randy, but pursued it, and then when we met, uh, I kind of said, wow, great, yes, that I can see how that film would hit so many themes that we're both fascinated in. And, uh, and that's basically how it, oh, and then we went down to meet Randy, he watched our previous film, so the last film that I had been involved in um, as writer-editor writer was called Being Elmo, about the puppeteer behind Elmo. And uh, so Randy watched Sons of Perdition and Being Elmo, and, uh, and then we met with him. And he said a lot of people have asked to do documentaries about him, but he, uh, he thought he appreciated our work and was very um, open in saying, if, if you're gonna make a film about me, uh, it's gotta be warts and all. And uh, we said we'd be happy to do that. <laughs> So has he seen the, the final film? He saw uh, a rough cut, um, not the final film. Um, and it, it was, I think, a little difficult for both him and his, his partner to see uh, elements of their lives that they you know, had lived through and not necessarily seen from the outside, uh, as well as, of course, all of all of these archival stories, but um, they're, they're very much supportive and, uh, and I guess proud of it. So good reaction in the end. That's good. So I'm curious, uh, having made this film now about magic and all the secrets behind magic tricks, are you impossible to fool? Um, uh, yes. I, <laughs> you you know pro. how all the magic tricks work. I, I, I've learned how to bend spoons like Uri Geller and, uh, and do a few tricks. Um, and the thing, the thing about magic that I've learned, and they're like Penn and Teller in the film and Adam Savage and Bill Nye and other magicians. And the one thing that I've learned is that uh, the explanation behind a magic trick is always disappointing. Like the magic isn't not knowing how it's done. Once you know how it's done, it's just like, oh, well, Okay, sure. So, uh, you know, it's, um, I, I actually prefer to be fooled. <laughs> That's great. Well, thank you so much, and uh, good You're luck welcome. with your film. Our last film uh, today is Below Dreams, directed by Garrett Bradley, and uh, we have a trailer, so let's watch that. Um, what's your name? Leanne Miller. I see a lot of people struggling in different ways. Some people more than the others. We have kids together, so I should give him another chance. Maybe I should give him a thousand chances. 
know, I hate to say it, but appearance has a lot to do with job preference and how your rate of pay is going to be determined. I came down here to meet up with this girl. I'm from New York, and, and uh, she, she moved down here. And, uh, I'm coming down here to meet up with her in New Orleans. He ain't nothing but a snake oil salesman. And from the beginning, I've watched him pick you up just to drop That's you That's because he's scared, Mom. Are you hiring? You know, any place I could go around here that's, that's hiring? What about the job at the cell phone, please? It didn't work out. All right, what about on bourbon? It didn't work out either. But how I'm going to get that, and I can't revolt. I'm a convicted felon for seven more years. to try to take me off my path, but I always go back to where my dreams are. Garrett, thank you for coming all the way from New Orleans to be here yeah, today. no problem. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit more about Below Dreams? Sure. Um, so it's about these three main characters who I think were uh, hopefully equally depicted in this trailer, um, who are all in their 20s in New Orleans and um, are trying to achieve something very specific in their lives. Um, Leanne, who's a single mother of four, is an aspiring actress and model. Um, Jermaine is trying to get rid of his gold teeth so he can get a legal job. Um, and Elliot is sort of this floater, college graduate, doesn't know what he wants to do with himself and goes down to New Orleans and is just kind of like looking for love and gets wasted pretty much the whole time. Um, so the film, for me, is just sort of a more inclusive view of people my age um, and what they're doing right now and sort of a uh, more diversified idea of what this struggle is. Um, and it, for me, the impetus was sort of in response to an article that I had read in 2010 uh, that the New York Times Magazine had put out called uh, What Is It About These 20-somethings? And it was this really beautiful layout of really, really great-looking people um, in New York who were like struggling because they had gotten these incredible educations and couldn't get jobs. Um, and that's, that's great. And, but there's also this whole other uh, group of people who are also in their 20s who um, are really struggling in a different kind of way. So that's what this film is about. And New Orleans is very much a character in your film. I'm wondering how you approach filming this iconic city. Um, well, we had, I had two uh, people shooting at the same time. And um, I mean, I, I guess that I could start by saying just quickly that the way, the way I cast the film, I think, is sort of in, in, integral to what you're seeing here, which is that um, they, everyone was cast off Craigslist uh, locally in New Orleans. Um, I, had, I had written a script based on these characters that I had met when I was traveling uh, that I couldn't find um, anymore. So I basically just put ads out on Craigslist saying, are you, to, to fit the characters that I had met and that I had written about. Um, so everybody involved uh, is 
in New Orleans, um, is from New Orleans, and was, we're really kind of experiencing these things in a real way, in a scripted, controlled way, too. Um, but uh, so the way, the way we shot was having these very kind of controlled, planned out scenes, and then also um, working with uh, Milena, who was the second uh, camera, um, and it's just kind of talking about where her eye needed to be in the city, how she needed to engage with the city with the camera, and then we kind of just brought these two worlds together, and uh, I think it worked well, luckily. <laughs> so your actors are non-professional? Yes, yes, they're all, they're all non-professional actors, um, yeah. I mean, it speaks to the film does have a very kind of documentary feel to it, and is that something intentional? Is that part of your vision for it? Um, I mean, I think it's funny. I've been trying to think about how to talk about that part of it because for me, there, there's such a sort of philosophical like fine line between like what is documentary, what is narrative, how do we engage with, with reality, and to what extent knowing these things beforehand is going to help us sort of then determine in the same way that you were sort of talking about magic, you know what I mean? Like knowing, knowing the tricks behind it or knowing the process, how does that how does that really allow us to engage with the material in a different kind of way? And I think that these, these are real stories that apply to a lot of people, 70% of the people in our country. Um, and there was, there was a lot of planning and then there was a lot of just letting that develop the way that it needed to. Um, and then recontrolling it all over again in the editing, which is what you do in doc and narrative. So is it a documentary? Is it a narrative? It's, Hopefully people can take something away from it um, and sort of engage with it in a way that they feel good about. You said that you worked with the actors in sort of a, a scripted, controlled environment, but they were non-actors sort of based on their real lives. How did you kind of strike that balance? Like, what was your process like day to day? Um, well, day to day, so I spent about six months um, casting people. I found a cafe and I just let people just came in. I just would spend a day there and, and meet people. And I eventually was able to, to work with uh, Leanne and Jemaine. Uh, you know, they were reliable, they were committed, they wanted to do this. Elliot, I actually had known previously. Um, and we, I just spent a lot of time with them, um, like babysitting, just hanging out. Um, and then uh, sort of presented the material that I had written and sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't and we sort of tweaked it to fit what felt really good to the two of that, to each of them, um, all three of them and um, did a lot of just hanging out together and, and writing together and then memorizing that um, and then introducing the camera, like the camera's gonna be here. So with the kids, for instance, that was a really that was something that was important, was like, how do the kids feel safe and not like they're being intruded upon? How, does, how do we really allow this, allow ourselves to be invisible? In, in, invisible in terms of the character, you know, working with the characters, but I didn't necessarily want the camera work to be invisible. I, I actually wanted to work with what I think are traditionally understood as being sort of mistakes, you know, and not just a shaky camera, but like the camera moving and allowing those to be transitions, allowing us to sort of like painting, you know, uh, painting between scenes, you know, with, with that movement, so. That's great. Well, it's a beautiful film. Congratulations. Thank you. And thank you guys all for speaking about your films. We do have, we do have time for some questions from the audience if anybody wants to get started. Yeah, right here. I have a two-tiered question regarding raising the budget for your films. If you can all just very quickly tell us, I mean, give us a piece of advice on how, to, how you raised your money and also, if anyone was able to procure a pre-sales foreign distribution deal. And then the last question, I'm sorry, I have one more question. And how do you guys feel about the advent of the equity crowdfunding, which is now legal? Anybody want to field that one? Can I get you first? I'll just, can you hear me? 
Um, so we made a low-budget movie. I've tried to raise lots of money before, and it's taken too long, and the money has fallen apart, so I don't have the stomach for that. So um, we made a low-budget movie. I put in some money, an investor put in some money, and I worked, you know, saved up money and did that. Very low-budget. What was the second part? Pre-sales. We showed the movie, a work in progress uh, of this movie in Poland in November, which helped us kind of get into Tribeca, which, because we showed the movie to some um, programmers there, Frederick Boyer. We also got... Well, no, the, the short answer is there's no movie stars in our movie, so we didn't do pre-sales. But showing the movie earlier on in a rough cut stage has helped us get a sales agent, which will help us maybe sell territories. But I'm sure you had pre-sales, right, based on the fact that you had... Uh, no, we didn't. We, uh, we thought about it, but I think we got the budget to where it was low enough that we thought we would try to create a product that we could, you know... It's a gamble, but I don't know if we could have gotten... Pre pre-sales are hard these days, and this is not a particularly international movie it doesn't have uh, some of the criteria you need for that but um yeah we 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 whittled that budget until we found investors who felt comfortable and uh and it was about the casting partly and it was about uh, uh uh just finding people who believed that it could be a cool little story what was the third part of the question well, oh. I, may, I may actually add to that real quick and just saying that if your question is trying to, if you're trying to determine if you should make your film or if you can make your film, I actually am not quite sure, I don't know about any of that at all. And I think that if you can find a way to just make your film, you know, um, I raised my money on Kickstarter and that was very difficult, especially because it's just, it's its own kind of like thing that you have to, it's very, very high maintenance and especially then when you have to go back and raise more money, it's very difficult. But I think that this day and age, it's like you can get very stuck in those, in those politics and all that business stuff. And I, I would actually just encourage you to just by all means possible, make the film that you think you can make. And the more people you have involved actually sometimes, whether they're pre-sales or whatever, it seems to me like maybe you have less control, you know, and if this is your first film, I think you want to put your heart in your sleeve and really be yourself and make make the thing that's you and not necessarily the person who has the money. I'll just add one thing. Um, kick, uh, crowdfunding is great. We raised like 250 grand. I think we became the fourth most funded documentary on Kickstarter. And that was like fabulous. Uh, and I'm so thankful to everybody who helped us out, but it is a lot of work. You've got like people won't support a film that they haven't heard of or don't know anything about, so you've got to get the word out there. Um, but I think it's a, a really important way to raise funds these days. Hi, this is a question for the panel. Uh, what are some of the creative challenges you go through in the filmmaking process? Like, are there times when you feel like maybe the scenes could have been worked out better, maybe the ending could have been different? Like, what are just some of those challenges you go through in the creative process? No one's answering because it's really hard. <laughs> it's all really hard, right? I, I mean, it's all very, very difficult. There, uh, there are thousands and thousands of creative decisions that you have to make constantly about every little detail. So, I mean, it's, it's challenging, but it's, it's, at least for me, incredibly invigorating. And, and I mean, it's one of the reasons why I love what I do and one, I think why we do this. Um, but I just, there are challenges all over the place. So uh, I, I would, you know, hesitate to even choose the, the greatest one. I, maybe funding can, can be, the, that's not a creative challenge, but you have to be creative about how, how you solve it. I found, um, I used to make movies and storyboard every shot and try to block out every movement and try to get every syllable of script on, you know, I'd have a vision, a specific vision. And now I feel like 
the biggest challenge, which has actually been liberating, has been letting go of a specific vision and just kind of saying, let's just see what happens. And Robert Altman, everyone knows who Robert Altman is, right? He used to talk about the happy accident when shooting a movie with multi-cameras where he would shoot multi-cameras and the actors would be doing this and that and he would look for something that wasn't planned, something that was like a complete accident, something spontaneous that would happen that you could never direct in a million years. That's where truth lied for him. That's where the truth was, when some kind of authentic moment that you couldn't plan out. And I felt as we were doing this, the less... I knew it was going to happen or even had a you know, vision of whatever vision. I'm sorry, that sounds pretentious, but like some kind of preconceit of what I was, was looking for. The less I held on to that and was tethered to that, the more liberating it was. Garrett, um, right, that you, you talked about painting to move scenes to the, from one scene to the next. And I feel like this kind of spontaneous kind of way of filmmaking where you don't really know what's going to happen reminds me of painting, like this effusive process where everything kind of happens and becomes very fun. And because we had a very small crew, everyone's participating and everyone's throwing ideas out. We're all just saying, let's just shoot it and see what happens without planning too much. Now, we had the luxury because it was a low-budget movie, so it's like we can experiment and see what happens. I mean, if you have a lot more you know, money and there's a lot more pressure based on talent or whatnot, I, that might be a different process. But for me, sorry to speak so much about this, but for me, the biggest creative challenge was letting go. And I feel like that's very liberating now. Sorry about that, talking so much. I would just say quickly, I, I, I think one thing that pops to mind is um, I think I have a, bleak, a very bleak personality and a, and a semi-sunny personality sometimes and how that applies to a film um, and when, when to you know, go with your darker instincts versus your, your lighter ones. And, and there's a personal vision you have and you, you're trying to stay true to that and yet you're also trying to, um, to not alienate your audience, not alienate your producers, your actors. And those are just constantly conflicting, is how much of your vision to be, to, grab, uh, to grasp really hard and strong to, versus to, uh, to know that your vision can use a little um, combat sometimes with others. Um, hi, uh, I have a question about pre-production. So you, all of your movies seem very like author-driven, um, and I was wondering how did you make sure that your, like what you went, into production with or into uh, rehearsals, how did you make sure that your script is in the best shape possible? Did you get a lot of feedback pre like uh, previously? Or yeah, how did you go about it? Thank you. Anyone want to take that one? I, I, uh, I, I worked on the script a lot. Like I said, it was a play. And then I had seen the play done in New York. And then I've seen it done in like Israel and France, where there are very different takes on it. So I would. I, I was lucky enough to go to some of those productions and see uh, a case where the, f the, the, the female of the three of those was the strongest actor on stage and how that completely uh, empowered her character in a way that another, another production didn't. And so I, I used all that and I sort of, I mean, I had the luxury of 10 years to sort of think about that stuff before I even tried to write a script. And um, so I worked a lot on it. And then as he says, you have to let go at the last second too. You can, you can and you should, I think, work fairly hard on your script and then and then serve it up and see what happens and, and be willing to be flexible. 
Yeah, while we were shooting, um, because it was so loose and we weren't so tethered to the script, I was rewriting as we were shooting. So that, you know, it would open things up. We would shoot things and unplanned dialogue would happen and things would happen that I wasn't prepared for, but I embraced and it was amazing. We were all celebrating. We we're like, well, let's change the script and, and see where it goes. And because we had this very kind of method where we, were, we, didn't, we weren't trying to memorize dialogue, it didn't matter if I delivered new scenes to the actors the next day because we weren't going to learn the dialogue anyway. So it was, con it was very dynamic was constantly changing. As far as pre-production, doing it, I mean, you, yours was a play first, right? So, I mean, was it on, was it staged first? Uh, in a, in, in a, as a play, yeah. Right, right. And then, um, so one location. So when you were writing the play, were you very specific about the production design and like the, the color of the walls and the specific furniture and things like that? I mean, or that happened? Yeah, to a degree. Yeah, definitely. Right. And when I was, when I'm writing a low budget movie like this, you don't, you throw all that stuff away. You don't want to have any of that stuff in the script because you keep all that open so that we'll find locations and then write the script around the locations that we have. That's a big difference for probably your project and like my project is, you know, you don't really have a specific thing that you're looking for. You just take what you can get. So for pre-production, we just wanted to get good locations, good outfits, good colors, cast the best people that we could. And when we got to set, you know, shoot and see what happens and then explore the universe as it started to happen, which is very liberating. I mean, again, I said that already, so yeah. Hey, this question is for Stefan. Um, and I, I love the fact that it was a play before and you turned it into a movie. I'm sure that two things happened, you know. Um, one, you were adapting it from one form to another, but also, you know, time has passed in your life and looking back on how it was done before and, you know, um, re-spinning it. Um, can you just talk a little bit about those two things and how um, that sort of changed the piece? Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a wiser man, I think. Um, and uh, I knew that, uh, you know, in the play has incredible moments of purposeful uh, ambiguity that I, I felt were sort of an immature writer's take. And, and just, I, I like ambiguity, but I thought I need to own that one a little bit more. So there were decisions like that. Um, there's a very different actor who played it on stage where I was involved with. And he brought, uh, Patrick Stewart brings a whole different um, vibe than it was Frank Langella who did it in, in New York. And that's, he's a, he's a different, different dude. And, and I had sort of developed it a little bit with Frank for a while. And, and, and he and I had talked about his personal life a lot. And, and, then, and then Patrick obviously felt connected to it on a personal level as well. And so he and I had talks and that changed the script a little bit. And I almost wanted to shoot in one room. Uh, the whole thing. I, I liked that challenge of making an emotional thriller or uh, uh, having a landscape where, where um, literally the actors' faces were as interesting to me as great locations. And we, we were able to get a couple good locations also, but I, I was loving um, finding angles and finding uh, when to push in and when to, to pull back. And, and I just, I wanted to, I'm a, I'm a fairly inexperienced filmmaker and I wanted to play with that. So this was almost the perfect uh, project for me to learn that aspect of filmmaking to what, what can the camera do uh, and how intimate it can be and as a theater guy you don't get that privilege uh, and the micromanagement of editing is an incredible power that you don't get in theater either so that was great um, and this was again this was perfect for me to to get in there and, and with an, a face like Patrick Stewart I mean you can you can spend a lot of time on his eyebrows and have fun just there so I was enjoying that can I did you do you watch any movies that were based on plays before you saw this to like just try to Get a visual style. I, I watched Twelve Angry Men a lot. I watched uh, uh, Virginia Woolf. Uh, I watched Doubt. Um, I was actually really into. Um, there are a couple of scenes in Capote, uh, 
where Philip Seymour Hoffman is there in the jail cell with uh, the guy uh, whose name I forget, the, the, the culprit. Uh, and it's incredible. These are long, beautifully shot scenes that should be, uh, could be out of a play. And you're mesmerized because the acting's so good, the stakes are so high, and I, I find that a thrilling cinematic experience. So um, there are other movies that I don't think succeed that are adaptations of plays, but certainly 12 Angry Men is an incredible one. And Virginia Woolf, you know, again, you get those performances, you, you know, uh, you, you just let the camera soak that in, in a way. Um, this is a question for Lee or any of the documentary ones. Um, those shots that we saw were beautiful. And so making those shots happen in, I'm guessing, a very quick, you know, you just have to kind of put the camera somewhere and shoot. Um, and also it looked like there were multiple cameras. So I'm curious where you were in all of it. And where, did you just really trust the people who were working the different cameras to kind of get those shots? Uh, well, actually, th that scene was shot with one camera, not two. Um, I think like 90% of the movie or so was shot with one camera. But um, I don't know. I think sh uh, shooting Verite documentary is like the best training that you can do if you're interested in visual storytelling. Because when you have absolutely no control over what's happening or the light or the colors or how people move or any of those things, that you just have to to sort of develop a way of capturing it and telling a story, and it's a tricky thing to do. A lot of it is being really patient, and a lot of it is sort of not getting overexcited and following every little thing, but just like waiting for the right thing to happen. But, and a lot of it's chance, too, so. Yeah, well, the scene you saw from my documentary had no verite. Those were just sit-down interviews, but we did shoot. There is a lot of verite in the film, and, uh, and I shot it along with Tyler, the other director, and um, so we've shot a lot of our own work, and I love Verite uh, filming, and it, it's incredibly challenging, but you learn through experience uh, to kind of understand, I mean, the combination of shots that you need for a scene, you know, if you're following action, how to, you know, get enough coverage, but also kind of follow emotionally what's going on and, and kind of know how to frame it based on the content that's unfolding in front of you. And that, you know, it's, it's one of the most dynamic experiences that, that, that you have during the process. And it's, it's really hard to just jump into it. You've got, I mean, I think experience takes a lot. Uh, it, it takes a lot, a lot of experience to get really good at it. And Again, there are always times when new things happen, and you like you're always faced with new challenges. So um, you just have to be open to trying things. That that would be my only advice. Great. Well, thank you everyone for being here today. Please do visit TribecaFilm.com for more information about all the films, and maybe our filmmakers can stick around a little as well. Um, so thanks again, and thank you guys for all being here and showing previews of your work. Good luck next week. Thank you. Thanks, thanks. everyone. Thank you.